I want to read something Elder Holland once taught about Joseph Smith's experience in Liberty Jail. He said, Most of us, most of the time, speak of the facility at Liberty as a jail or a prison, and certainly it was that. But Elder Brigham H. Roberts, in recording the history of the church, spoke of the facility as a temple, or more accurately, a prison temple. Elder Neil A. Maxwell used the same phrasing in some of his writings. As we think on these things, does it strike us that spiritual experience, revelatory experience, sacred experience can come to every one of us in all the many and varied stages and circumstances of our lives if we want it, if we hold on and pray on, and if we keep our faith strong through our difficulties? Tonight's message is that when you have to, you can have sacred revelatory, profoundly instructive experience with the Lord in any situation you are in. This week, we study a moment for Israel that taught them powerful truths about themselves and the Lord. Although they were not wrongly imprisoned like Joseph Smith, they had a miserable experience because of their own actions that brought them to mourn. In that mourning and in our own, we can see and learn truths about our Lord that can help us grow, heal, and change. Welcome to the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton, and this is our podcast where we study Scripture with you. Our goal each week is to help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word, invest your heart and personal life into your study, and connect with others as you teach and learn together. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's study of Exodus 24, 31 through 34. Now, right at the beginning, I want to say two things. First, I don't have Krista with me this week, which uh, in one aspect is going to be a good thing because it's it'll allow me to tell a story without her correcting my version of the story. Um, I will try to do it without exaggeration, and uh, she'll probably listen anyway, and so uh, I can't go too far out there, otherwise I'll get in trouble. But uh, I'll, I'll do that in a minute. The second thing I want to point out, as you probably already have noticed, this week we skip quite a few chapters. We ended last week in Exodus 18 through 20, And then we pick up this week in chapter 24 and then jump ahead six more chapters to chapter 31. And that's kind of going to be par for the course for the rest of the Old Testament. You don't need me to tell you that the Old Testament is is a really big book. And there's more there than we can possibly focus on in one year of study. Now, that's not to say that what we are skipping over isn't important. And so I want to give you just a brief overview of what's being skipped because it does actually play a part of what we're going to study. So Exodus 20, the Lord outlines the Ten Commandments, but his laws do not end there. And chapters 21 through 23 give more more of his laws, specific instructions. For example, he details how Israel is supposed to act around uh, strangers or Gentiles or others. Um, One of the things that's taught to them is that because they know what it feels like to be a stranger in a strange land, uh, they need to be uh, loving and kind to those that might feel strangers around them. However, they also need to be careful not to mix their worship 
with the culture of those that they will be uh, surrounding themselves with. So that's chapters 21 through 23. And then we get a brief glimpse at chapter 24 of Israel accepting all of the commandments and the laws the Lord has given them and then making a covenant with him. And then chapters 25 through 30 are a very detailed description of the tabernacle that Moses will be commanded to build. And we will talk a little bit more about that. So it's not that those chapters don't have something meaningful in them. It's just that there are only a few things that we can focus on. And some of the things that are most important to focus on are in the chapters we have listed this week. Now, the story I want to tell. When when Krista and I were first married, uh, we, we don't argue a lot. Um, she might argue with that, <laughs> but I don't feel like we argue a whole lot. But I remember the first argument that we had. Um, we were walking down, we were shopping together and and we're walking down the bread aisle. And I don't remember if it was me that grabbed a loaf of bread first or, or she, I think it was me that I grabbed what I had always grabbed when shopping for myself, the 88 cent loaf of grocery store brand bread. You know, the kind of bread that is uh, it has no nutritional value and is just plain filler for your stomach. I always bought that. That was my go-to meal at college, the cheapest bread. And then I would go buy the cheapest meat and the cheapest cheese. And that was my you know, lunch and dinner. So that's what I reached and grabbed and put in the cart. And she looked at me and, and I still remember she said something. I just remember her grabbing the loaf of bread out of the cart, putting it back on the shelf, and then grabbing the $4.50 loaf you know, the one that there's like six pieces of bread in it. It's a quarter of the size of a regular loaf of bread and it has more seeds on it than it does bread. She grabs that loaf and puts it in the cart. And in my memory, I have us going back and forth, putting loaves of bread in and out of the cart. That might be an exaggeration. But uh, I learned really quickly that for my wife, health was a bigger priority than uh, frugality. And for me, it was exactly the opposite. The first trip we went to Costco was a fiasco. <laughs> we, we, uh, it was not a good day for us. Now, we have since over 15 years of marriage gotten much better at this. And uh, it's we've kind of met in the middle, though I hopefully have come more to her perspective than she to mine because it's important to be healthy. But the point is, when we were dating... Um, it was bliss. I mean, it often is, right? When you're dating the person that you're going to marry, just, everything is 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 wonderful. And we had discussions and uh, and disagreements, but um, we we really liked being together. This particular truth about Krista, I could not have learned while we were dating, because there just isn't enough tension or conflict in the dating relationship for me to learn something like that about her. I could only learn it when we were married. And it took that kind of a, a situation, that kind of a tense uh, conflict or situation to help me learn something about her that I otherwise wouldn't have learned. Why that interests me is because this week in our study, we are looking at a, a very tense situation between Israel and the Lord. Moses comes down the mountain with the commandments, and Israel has has built foreign gods, idols. They're worshiping those idols. They've completely abandoned the commandments that they themselves heard from the voice of God echoing from the mountain. Um, 
And, and so we have here probably the first real conflict between Israel and their God. Now, that's not to say there hasn't been conflict in the Bible so far. We've had that, but often it's been Israel on the side of God, right? Think back to the Egyptians. It's Israel and the Lord uh, against the Egyptians, against Pharaoh. But here, it's the Israelites against the Lord. And uh, there is, of course, a beautiful narrative of, of the Lord's understanding. Uh, there are consequences. And there is atonement and forgiveness, uh, which is beautiful. But I don't want to skip over the conflict and just get to the resolution because there are some things about the Lord that Israel can only learn from this kind of situation. I think that there are truths we can learn about the Lord only when we go through difficulties. Now, I am not saying that you now need to separate yourself from God or, or rebel against him to learn truths about him. What I am saying, though, is when you hit moments in your life, when you feel like God might be distant from you or where you feel you might be distant from him, uh, there's something that is separating you from God. It might be in those moments that you can learn something about him that you otherwise couldn't learn. And what I want to examine as we study together is some truths that we can only learn about the Lord from um, those kinds of moments. So uh, just to flesh out where we're going, in chapter 25, one of the chapters that we are missing, we're skipping this week, the Lord commands Israel to build a tabernacle, and he gives an express purpose for that tabernacle. This is chapter 25, verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. The desire of the Lord is to be in the middle of his people. Verse 22, there I will meet with thee and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. That's the seat that's going to be in the holiest place, the holy of holies in the tabernacle. And the Lord's desire is that he will be there in the midst of his people talking to them. Uh, a little bit later, chapter 29, verse 45 the Lord says again, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. I love that the Lord's desire is to be with his people. However, in chapter 33, uh, after the Israelites command Aaron to make them the golden calf and they worship the golden calf and Moses comes down the mountain and he takes the stone tablets and throws them on the ground and breaks them. Um, Moses has this, uh, this discussion with the Lord about consequences. Uh, this is chapter 33, verse 3. The Lord says that he will lead them to a land flowing with milk and honey. But then he says, I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. Moses actually puts this into action, and in verse 7, he takes the tabernacle of the congregation. That's not the eventual tabernacle they'll build, but it is the tent that uh, Moses has had spiritual experiences in. The, the cloud the, of the Lord has been over the tent, so it's a place, a holy place. And Moses takes that tabernacle of the congregation, and he takes it, breaks it down from inside the camp, and then pitches it outside the camp. Uh, it says, everyone that sought the Lord went out into the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. So a symbol of God's 
uh, presence with his people is literally removed from their midst. Now, Moses will, of course, plead with the Lord uh, in verse 16. Wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth? In other words, isn't the thing that makes us this peculiar people that you've created is that you are with us. You're not a remote and distant God. Uh, and so Moses pleads on behalf of his people with the Lord that, they, that uh, the Lord will remain with them. Uh, chapter 34, verse 9, just another beautiful prayer. He said, If I now have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance. I love Moses' prayer. I see a very Christ-like symbolism in what he is doing. He is representing his people. He's advocating for them uh, and, and asking the Lord, with whom Moses still has face-to-face -face interactions with. Moses is not guilty of betrayal of the Lord. The Lord speaks to him face-to-face, -face, and he's able to behold the Lord's presence and his glory and, and goodness. So Moses, in that unique role where he is sinless or faultless of this particular sin, is able to advocate on behalf of his people, uh, and the Lord will agree and will go with them, and the pillar of fire and the cloud uh, and the tabernacle all will continue with the people. So again, a beautiful story of redemption. But in the middle of all of that, in chapter 33, there's an interesting exchange. In verse 18, Moses asks the Lord, show me thy glory. Now, Moses has already beheld the glory. We know from Moses 1, uh, we know from earlier on in Exodus that, the, that Moses has had plenty of visions and chances to see the glory of God. The first time he sees it, he falls down and doesn't want to look upon God because it's so consuming. I love that here now Moses is at a point where he, he desires more. He wants to see more of the Lord's glory. And the Lord answers in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Um, he says in verse 20, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall there's no man that shall see me and live. The Joseph Smith translation there is wonderfully helpful because otherwise, without it, it's very confusing because Moses sees God face to face in verse 11. And we know that plenty of people have seen the Lord face to face. Um, but the difference between glory and goodness struck me. Moses asked to see the Lord's glory, and the Lord says, I will show you my goodness. Now, I do not know outright the difference between those two. I looked up the Hebrew. At the very least, glory represents, at least the way it's used here, abundance, fullness. In other words, I think Moses is asking, I want to see everything. Can you show me everything? And the Lord uses a different word in verse 19 to explain what he's going to show Moses. He's going to show him goodness or good things. He's going to show him parts of himself that contribute to that glory and that fullness. In other words, Moses and by extension the Israelites are going to learn something about the Lord. In this fractured, contentious situation that they have not previously learned. Now, before we dive into what that would be, just pause for a minute and consider experiences you have had in your life or maybe experiences you are currently having in your life where you don't feel 100% aligned or in sync with the Lord. 
maybe it's a prayer that you have or a question that you have in your heart that you don't feel like you're getting answers to. And so you feel a little bit of separation from the Lord. Maybe his tabernacle to you feels like it's outside of the camp instead of in the camp. Maybe it's something you've done, uh, a, a mistake or a fault or a weakness that you feel is perpetually separating you from the Lord. And uh, it is completely true that there is resolution to those distances. Um, we can draw ourselves closer to the Lord, and he is always seeking to draw himself close to us while respecting our agency. But I want to pause before we get to that resolution and look at what can we learn. What do you learn from those experiences that might be unique? What do you learn about the Lord that would help you as you draw closer to him? Now, I want to look at a couple of things. Uh, you and your study will find other things that will be more personal and more powerful to you, but just as a couple of examples. First, at the beginning of chapter 32, right before Israel uh, builds the, or has Aaron make the molten calves and they, they fall away, it says in verse 1 that this all begins because Moses delayed to come down off the mount. Moses is up there 40 days, and then we'll go up and spend another 40 days after this. And if you think about it, this is the man to, by God's own command, will represent God to them. So for a month and a half, they have no presence of a prophet and therefore uh, no, no representation from the Lord to them. And uh, I've been previously quick to judge the Israelites. Of course, the Lord condemns them, and that's an appropriate thing to do. But I've been maybe without understanding of what that would be like to be a month and a half without any uh, influence, any direction, any sign from God that he's there. And so uh, the Israelites, in their impatience, build themselves their own God because they want something to represent God to them. Now, what do we learn about the Lord from that? Well, one thing I learned is the Lord takes his time. We do not worship a God who is a rusher. He doesn't skip things. He doesn't move quickly from point to point to point. Even as he hastens his work, he does it deliberately, line upon line, and it takes a divine, divinely appointed time. Uh, I don't know if we can learn that truth about the Lord unless we are in moments where we are waiting upon him. Otherwise, we might feel like God always instantly answers prayers, uh, where he always grants the thing that we're asking for. And that's not his personality. And there are multiple reasons behind that. Um, but a couple of uh, just additions to that. Uh, this is from Elder Uchtdorf, uh, about 10, I think, a little bit longer, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, in general conference, he gave a brilliant uh, sermon on patience. And one of the headings that he lists is, patience isn't merely waiting. And he tells the story of um, learning English after his family moved from East Germany to West Germany. He'd been learning Russian, and now he has to learn English. And uh, he was a good student, but English became really difficult to him. Uh, and so he has to uh, learn patience. He says this, Fortunately, I had a teacher who taught me to be patient. He taught me to be to that steady and consistent work. Patient persistence would help me learn. 
Over time, difficult subjects became clear, even English. Slowly, I began to see that if I applied myself consistently, I could learn. It didn't come quickly, but with patience, it did come. From that experience, I learned that patience was far more than simply waiting for something to happen. Patience required actively working toward worthwhile goals and not getting discouraged when results didn't appear instantly or without effort. I love that description of a quality that we should acquire because it is a quality that God himself possesses. Our God is a patient God. The Lord is patient. He waits for things to happen in their time. He works diligently towards them. And if we want to become like him, uh, we need that same quality. Another quote from Elder Maxwell years ago, Patience makes possible a personal spiritual symmetry, which arises only from prolonged obedience within free agency. (laughs) I read that emphasizing every word because it's one of those Elder Maxwell quotes where every single word means something. Uh, I love that he points out that this uh, patience only arises from prolonged obedience within free agency. In other words, we may not be able to develop the way we want to develop and certainly develop the relationship with God we want to develop unless we have to be patiently obedient to something without an immediate resolution. Finally, and this one's perhaps my favorite, in King Benjamin's sermon in the Book of Mormon, and as he is describing God, notice some of the key words in there that we've already highlighted. I say unto you, if you have come to a knowledge of the goodness of God and his matchless power and his wisdom and his patience and his long-suffering toward the children of men, and also the atonement which has been prepared from the foundation of the world, that thereby salvation might come to him that should put his trust in the Lord. And then he goes on, if you have received this, then can you not believe in God and be true to him? Um, In the list of qualities that Benjamin gives, power is there, goodness is there, wisdom is there, long-suffering atonement is there, all of those we know. But patience is inextricably tied to all of that. The Lord takes his time. He is a patient God. And we may only be able to know that, feel that, sense that, and develop it within ourselves when we are required to be patient. Another attribute of the Lord's personality that we may only be able to learn in situations like this comes in Exodus 34. As I already read, uh, the Lord tells Moses that he's going to reveal his name to him or more fully his name to him. And in Exodus 34, we get a two verse long name of the Lord. This is verse six. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children under the third and the fourth generation. That's the name. Those full two verses is his name. And I love that in his name, my favorite word is the and right in the middle. The Lord is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. He gives mercy for thousands and forgives iniquity. And at the same time, will by no means clear the guilty and requires consequences and repentance. In other words, the Lord is balanced. 
He does not possess one quality to the exclusion of another quality, despite the fact that I think today it's really popular to try and portray God in that way. Uh, People will say, God is loving. And if God is loving, then, and they'll tack onto that whatever else they want. Now, it is, of course, true that God is loving. He is full of love. It is, at the same time, true that God is a God of law. President Oaks has taught us that repeatedly. He's not one or the other. He's not one at one time and then the other at the other time. He is full of love and full of law. He is both. He is balanced. He's merciful and at the same time requires growth and uh, demands uh, change. He has expectations. Uh, As a couple of illustrations, this same Lord shows up repeatedly, of course, in the New Testament, possessing these balanced qualities. In fact, uh, it's, of course, easy to find in the examples of the Savior, divine qualities. It is impossible to find in the examples from the Savior only one divine quality. In other words, the Savior is never just one thing. He's always at least two, and sometimes those two things seem contradictory. As one example, John chapter 8, the woman taken in adultery. You remember she's thrown at the feet of the Savior, and they accuse her. Now, I love, as you do, that the Savior kneels down. His first action is in movement towards this woman. He takes time. He does not respond immediately to those that are surrounding them. He writes in the, in the ground, and then he dismisses the onlookers. He gets rid of the arena. And after they are gone, he confirms to the woman that he does not condemn her. And I love his love and his kindness. You can feel it. At the same time, he is not only loving to her. First of all, he does not contradict the accusation. Uh, In other words, he doesn't say, hey, you didn't do what they're telling you you did. He lets it sit. And not only that, he specifically commands her to go and sin no more. He is, at the same time, loving, compassionate, forgiving, full of mercy, and he wants this woman to grow and develop. He has expectations for her. It's not one or the other. Another example, Mark chapter 10. You remember the rich young ruler that comes to the Savior, and as we uh, know, the Savior beholding him loved him. And again, I love that too. But what does he ask this rich young ruler? Well, he asks him to go and sell all that you have and follow me. At the same time, there is love and expectation. Great verse in Doctrine and Covenants, section 84, verse 102. Uh, In a description of the Lord, it says, Glory and honor and power and might be ascribed to our God. And then listen, For he is full of mercy, justice, grace, and truth, and peace, forever and ever. Amen. I love that the Lord is balanced in all things, that he possesses these divine qualities always and at the same time and forever and ever. And sometimes I don't know if we can learn the other side of God's balanced personality um, unless we have these moments of, of difficulty or trial. And perhaps most obviously, The Lord atones for us, and that we certainly cannot learn. 
unless we have moments of separation. We cannot have a testimony of the Savior, our Redeemer, unless we have moments where he redeems us. Um, the goal of life is not to live flawlessly. The goal of life is to bring our weakness and our sins and our pains and trials to the Savior so that he can redeem us from them. Uh, in Exodus 32, after Moses has that scene where he throws the tablets down and he's upset, it says in verse 30, or he says in verse 30 to Israel, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of the book which thou hast written. So many things about that that remind me of the Savior. His intercession with the Father, his willingness to take upon himself our sins. Um, and I don't know if we learned that unless, certainly, unless we come to him with those sins, with those mistakes, with those weaknesses, and let him redeem us. Now, you will find your own things that stand out to you in your study, but hopefully this gives you a beginning of that study and maybe sparks some thoughts as you ponder moments in your life when you might feel separated um, or when you might feel distanced from the Lord. Maybe this points out to you some attributes of the Lord that you have a relationship with or want a stronger relationship with, attributes of him that increase your desire to be close to him. Friends, thank you so much for studying with me this week. Krista will be back with me next week. Uh, have a wonderful study.